What's up, everyone? I'm here again talking to you guys about ButcherBox. You guys know I've actually used ButcherBox before they were a sponsor. Uh, It's just really good meat at a really good price. You don't have to go to the grocery store. You don't have to worry. The beef is 100% grass-fed. The chicken is organic. The pork is humanely raised. The seafood is wild-caught. It's just good quality stuff. You save a lot of time. It's convenience. You'll eat better this year with the best meat and seafood on the planet delivered right to your door. It's actually offering our listeners now their choice of a weeknight meal essential. That's three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. I mean, if you're like me, that's like four meals right there that you're good for. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com underworld and use code underworld to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Again, new users will receive their choice of two pounds of ground beef, three pounds of chicken thighs, or one pound of premium steak tips for a year. And use the code UNDERWORLD and get $20 off your first box. Okay, this is a crazy one. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. So 25 years later, on December 8th, 2022, both men were freed based on evidence that was unearthed in Proof in the podcast, which again, insane. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, it's called, Susan and Jacinda, they're back on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June 5th, 2000, Ramos' body was found buried, buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, Tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Bands of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Again, last season, they got someone off. They got two people off of a murder. So follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to proof Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. April 19th, 1928, in Southern Illinois. 500 people are watching Charlie Berger, Russian Jewish immigrant, former soldier, cowboy, bootlegger, bank robber, and gangster warlord of Southern Illinois, walk the 100 feet or so to the gallows. He stops to shake hands with various people in the crowd, smiles at everyone, doesn't seem like he has a care in the world. Berger's been a beloved figure here for a decade. He kept the bars full of whiskey, tossed out money and ice cream to children. He would even slip an envelope of money under the door of a poor family's house. He had a bit of a reputation as a Robin Hood figure, and he was also charismatic as all hell, good-looking, sharp, and tough as nails. It wasn't all smiles, though. Berger had a lot of enemies. He was fond of saying, I never killed a man who didn't deserve killing. But of course, you know, that's like an opinion. Once he killed two men in the span of four days, and he got away with it, too. He had this habit of letting his rivals issue threats so that when he took them out, he could claim self-defense. It didn't hurt that he had plenty of cops and politicians on his payroll. Berger also wasn't shy about his criminal exploits. He once claimed he couldn't go to jail after an arrest, 
because he needed to kill a rival to win a $500 bet. His reputation for violent retribution was so powerful that sources for a book that was written 70 years after his death requested to be anonymous. It's actually quite a surprise that Berger is even here, facing the law. For a decade, he's been Teflon, untouchable, nothing the police or anyone else could do. The Ku Klux Klan, on the rise after the movie Birth of a Nation came out, and hyping themselves up as some sort of purity enforcers, sent the fearsome Two Guns Young to the area to wage war on the bootleggers and gangsters that had taken over during Prohibition. Young and the Klan didn't count on the war that came back from the Burger Gang shooters and their allies, the Shelton brothers. Then the Burger Gang and Shelton Gang turned on each other, turning Southern Illinois into a bloodbath with 1920-style technicals and even an air raid. Still, Burger remained unharmed, even taking to the radio to issue public death threats. Unfortunately, he ended up pushing things a little too far, and now he's been sentenced to death by hanging. He would be the last man to be publicly executed in Illinois, and the state is determined to go through with it. When he gets to the top of the steps, he points to the crowd and says, quote, Beautiful world, I have not a thing in the world against anybody. I forgive everybody. I was able to do all that through this wonderful Jewish rabbi. He even told the hangman he was a wonderful boy and thanked the wife of his jailer. The headline on the paper the next day read, quote, Never unshaken, dies as he lived, smiles, and does not squeal. This is the Underworld Podcast. Welcome back to the Underworld Podcast. We are two journalists who have reported on crime all over the world. And every week we bring you a different story about global organized crime from the past to the future while sharing helpful tips about smuggling exotic animals on commercial airlines. I'm your host, Danny Gold. My usual co-host, Sean Williams, is not here. He is on his monthly vacation somewhere on a boat, probably paid for with funds he embezzled from this podcast. As always, you can find all sorts of bonus stuff from interviews to mini episodes, the scripts at the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the underworld podcast, where for just $3 a month, you can support us and help us keep going. Uh, also, I always forget to do this, but please try to rate us five stars, subscribe, wherever it is on, on all the outlets. I'm actually joined this week today by a special guest, my friend and yours, Jake Hanrahan of Popular Front, who is a documentary filmmaker, a writer, a podcaster, everything like that. I last saw him in Ukraine like about a month ago when he was making his fantastic doc about anti-fascist football hooligans, taking the fight to Russia on the front lines. And he also bought me dinner. So if at least four of you could go subscribe to his Patreon to help him earn that money back, please do so. Thanks very much for having me, mate. But don't worry, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to pay me back that money. It's all good. It was a gift. It was, it was delicious. I think it was pizza and, uh, and we got some beers too. And it was awesome. Yeah, it wasn't that good, but, but, um, <laughs> you know, Jake's been doing this independent podcast thing and, and media company thing for, for longer than we have. And he's always been one of our biggest supporters and, uh, drove a lot of his listeners to us. So thank you for that, uh, Jake. Of course, man. It's good stuff. You know, good stuff supports good stuff. That's what I think. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I think we all, we always love these stories of like mafiosos or gangsters fighting Nazis, right? Yeah. There's a few pretty classic ones. There's Meyer Lansky and his crew just breaking up rallies in New York and beating, beating the crap out of Nazis. Yeah. Bugsy Siegel almost killing Hitler in some Italian villa, I think it was. And like Lucky Luciano and his goons making sure the ports didn't have any German spies. These are all pretty well-known stories, I think, for people who pay attention to this sort of thing. But um, this one about like mafioso bootleggers taking on the KKK in Illinois in the 1920s, I actually, I hadn't heard about it before. No, same, never. Like, I, like when you told me yeah. about it, 
I was like, all right, this is right up my alley. How have I not heard of it? Like, it's a very cool story. Oh, yeah. No, this is perfect for you. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to get you for this. And also, I think part of it, too, is that, like, Midwest mafioso stuff doesn't get that much attention as the East Coast, New York stuff or London stuff. And the stuff that usually does is out of Chicago with Al Capone, right? But right. there's plenty of wild stuff when you look into it in America, like in, in, in Cleveland, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and, and this story, too. What There's kind actually, of, um, if you don't mind me asking, like a very British thing to yeah. ask, but like, what kind of culture is like the Midwest associated with generally? I mean, I guess it's kind of like, um, I think a lot of people look at it as like American culture, right? It's like very nice, uh, polite society sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, th- there's like a healthy amount of like, uh, I think, uh, Irish and Italian immigrants in some parts of it, but it's also viewed as like sort of evangelical church land, Americana, state fairs. Uh, fatty foods, that sort of thing. Right, right. So very American. Right, very, very American in that regard. You know, there's actually a single book out there about the Burger Gang called A Night of Another Sort by Gary Daniel. Mm. And I think a lot of the articles I read were based around it, though, you know, there are some primary sources from newspapers at the time. I unfortunately didn't have enough time to get the book and go through it. But uh, if you want to learn more about, about, you know, this guy that we're going to talk about, Charlie Burger, I think that's definitely the book to get. And Berger is actually a Russian Jew. He's born there in the 1880s, and his real name is Shachna Itzig Berger. His family ends up coming to the U.S. when he's eight years old. They're following an older brother, and they settle in St. Louis, which back then is like the fourth biggest city in the U.S. So it's now it's not even in the top 50. And he even ends up getting a job as a newsboy for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is a great paper that still is doing a fantastic job covering St. Louis crime. I think we've covered the story of St. Louis crime, but couple times in the podcast and i made a bunch of docs about it the murder rate in st louis it's actually considerably lower this year so that's that's pretty good news on that front that's good and the yeah. new number one yeah the new number one currently in the u.s is new orleans which uh you know always had that that rep and i guess is back to the bad old days unfortunately and another side note like i know our our scumbag listeners who i love dearly don't come here for for historical like jewish history stuff but more so for advice on how to you know sneak ketamine into sporting events or whatever but i'm gonna give it anyway the reason a lot of jewish families from russia and poland ended up settling in the midwest and south during these times is because there was actually this divide right there are a lot of jews in new york for sure but the previous wave had included mostly german jews who were more educated professional better off and then these waves of eastern european and russian jews started coming in especially after all the russian pogroms that started happening um at the end of the 19th century, they were less educated. They were like rural people. They were wilder, kind of looked down on. And the more established Jews, they were kind of worried that if you had all of them coming in, it would lead to more anti-Semitism and more immigration restriction, which is not an unfounded concern. Mm. So they encouraged and actually did help settle them elsewhere outside the Northeast in places like St. Louis. And that was one of the biggest cities in the U.S. back then. So they you know, already did have a, have a small population, comparatively speaking. But... um. Yeah, they brought a lot of them in, and that's why you have these communities that, 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 that got started in, in a place like St. Louis. So Berger, he works as a newsboy, and then he starts working in a pool room, but eventually he joins the army in 1901, which is G Company in the newly formed 13th Cavalry, serving in South Dakota, and he becomes this like pretty established horseman. He's said to have been an expert at breaking wild horses, which is like a kind of a badass thing to be good at, you know? It's like, like basically making them rideable, right? Kind of domesticating them. Right. That sounds fucking hot. Yeah, dude. It's, it's, uh, I think, I feel like I've seen it only in like movies, you know, like Legends of the Fall or like, yeah, same, like, yeah. like, like, like modern westerns, like the neo western stuff, which is, which is awesome. 
Yeah, very, like you know, one of those dudes who like touches the horse on the nose and and whispers to I don't know, man, whatever it is. He's like, yeah, he, baby, let's ride. He he's good at that. He gets an honorable discharge from the army, and he's described as being like a courageous and capable soldier. So he leaves the army in 1904. He tries his luck as a cowboy. That doesn't work out. And according to Southern.com, quote, Berger returned to the rough area of East St. Louis and for about eight years knocked about in obscure jobs. He was five feet eight and wiry, handsome and pleasant enough if he was getting his way. But if you pushed Charlie, you had somebody to fight. So for you non-Americans and Americans that didn't pay attention, East St. Louis is actually in the state of Illinois, Southern Illinois. So it's just across the river from St. Louis, which is in Missouri. And it was this huge manufacturing hub back then, just like factories everywhere, you know? And because of that, you have a lot of like roughnecks there and, and just people who are real, real salt of the earth types. So it had a share of crime. And also when you have all these working men there, you're going to have, you know, booze, hookers, drugs, all that sort of stuff. Now it's actually a really devastated area because all that, all that manufacturing went away. So it's a vacant city. It's got a real bad rap for murder and crime and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so he's in, he's in, you know, East St. Louis, post army. He tries a few things, including mining, which is big there. Doesn't really work. By 1913, he marries the first of his four wives that he would have, and he moves to Saline County. This is coal country, and it's also a dry county. Oh, fuck. This is, this is coal country, and it's also, it's also a dry area. So this is before prohibition, but there were still areas where, where they didn't serve alcohol. And when you've got coal miners and no booze for them, like that's a big market. So he starts running a little whiskey in a tavern, and he also runs a brothel out of that tavern as well. And Saline is part of this area, they call it Little Egypt, right? With Franklin and Williamson counties in Southern Illinois. It's known for being kind of a violent place with old school family feuds, like Hatfields versus McCoy style, real like Appalachia shit. Like blood feud type shit. Right, 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 right. Because they were, you know, people, Scots-Irish that came over, that sort of thing, they lived in the mountains. Mm. And there was also lots of clashes between coal miners and strike breakers during this time. So it was real rough and tumble. And I feel like, you know, Jake, you're from the Midlands. You can appreciate that sort of situation. I mean, let's be honest. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a rough and ready culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Williamson eventually earns the nickname Bloody Williamson for all of that. And because of something called the Heron Mine Massacre in 1922, when a shootout broke out at a coal mine strike and 23 people were killed, which is like, that's insane. You know, that this kind of thing was 23 people killed. I'd like a strike, but I guess, you know, that's coal miners, 1910s, 1920s. You had really rough conditions, strikes, violence, pollution. Like it was, yeah. it was real, it was real heavy. Well, there's some excellent kind of, I don't want to say forgotten history, but history that's not exactly part of many curriculums in America or anywhere really. Um, yeah. Where like a lot of these unions of like the miners and the, uh, and people like that, they would come together and yeah, they would fight the state because they were like, Hey, what the fuck is this? You know, you're taking advantage of us. It's really interesting. Kind of a lost, a lost history. You know, it's a shame. There's a, there's a really famous documentary. I think it was from the sixties and seventies about a strike too. God, how can I remember? It's, it's named after the County where the strike was, um, about the clashes involved in, in like mining and things like that. So yeah, it was mm. still, I say 1910s, 1920s, but that stuff was still going on generations later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a quote from the Illinois State Museum Archive of Williamson. The county had a history of violence dating back to the 1860s and an acceptance of murder that resulted in a failure to convict any defendant for that crime for 100 years. So yeah, you know, murder, murder was not uncommon in these areas. Mm. Perfect sort of territory for, uh, for a gangster to get going. So Berger, I mean, he's a sharp guy. He's tough. Says the Chicago Tribune, quote, 
Berger forged an informal business alliance between the hill people who manufactured much of his booze in deep wood stills and the miners who consume most of it. I just, dude, I, I love the term hill people, man. It's just real, real like Scots Irish mountain shit. And I kind of, yeah. I, 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 I like learning about that sort of part of immigration. Why? There's a really good book called um, American Nations I just read, and it kind of delves into, I think there's a few of them that delves into these immigration patterns, and they call them the borderlanders, because there was the people who came from the borderlands of, of the UK that mm. were used to like this, um, you know, history of violence, dealing with like the, 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 the state and all that sort of stuff. And they sort of brought that culture with them to the US and just wanted to be left alone and do operate their own thing. But if people cross them, you know, they got very violent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had it even in actually in England. It wasn't just Ireland and Scotland. Like even in England, we had um, a group that I, I'm particularly interested in called the New Levelers, or sometimes they were known as the Diggers, and they were like you know like kind of farm people, hill people, I guess if you like. And they actually kind of they actually led an uprising from the place where I'm from in the Midlands, um, in like the 1600s, and they would just take land from the, at the time. It wasn't really the st- I mean it was the state, but it was the monarchy, right, from the king, and they would just take the land back and they would start growing crops on it, you know illegally and just give out the food to like you know like they would set up a co-op with people in the area that were completely fucking broke starving and you know obviously the monarchy didn't give a shit about them the government didn't give a shit about them so yeah so the the levelers would um yeah they would do it themselves and they got into like you know open combat with with the state with the king with the whatever with the monarchy um obviously they got like massacred and whatever and it's not even taught in our history books in school or anything but it's a really cool bit of like radical you know history from britain and yeah, they were just people that were like, hey, we want to be left alone, but you keep taking our land to like ride your horses on it. So we're going to grow crops on it because we're starving. So it's so cool when you see that that stuff like has a legacy somewhere else as well, you know? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And the way it sort of forged this culture in Appalachia and how that, how that worked out. Mm. And the thing to understand back too, this back then too, this is like a perfect lead in. A lot of the people coming into work, the mines, there was this big immigration thing happening, right? And you had, you know, you had a few Jews, but you had lots of Catholics coming in. And there was a lot of fear and a hatred of these new immigrants in this changing rural America, which, you know, obviously sounds familiar. Mm. So you had, you know, Catholics, few Jews, but these like European, English, whatever it was, immigrants coming in and they were going into these strict Protestant communities that weren't so fond of them and they weren't fond of their taste for booze either. And that's going to lead to some things that we'll talk about in, in a little bit. Says the Digital Research Library of Illinois History Journal, quote, Alcohol was viewed as an un-American vice practiced by immigrants, many of whom belonged to the Catholic Church and other religions. Many immigrants worked in the coal mines of southern Illinois, living mainly in very small towns with a strong ethnic identity. Alcohol was a part of their life, and bootlegging came naturally to them. So in 1919, the Volstead Act comes along and bans alcohol and prohibition starts. And as we've talked about in other episodes and everywhere else I think has, has dived into this, this is like the boon for organized crime that is just the greatest thing that's, that they've ever dreamed of, right? Mm. And Charlie, he's already running booze in the dry county. He was kind of small time, but he's well suited to take advantage of the situation, and he does. He had had a saloon by then called the Near Bar, which also had a casino and a brothel. And you got to understand, though, this isn't like, you know, Boardwalk Empire or Chicago style with like Capone and all that. This is like rural folk, moonshine, hollows, winter's bone, like not fancy speakeasies. Think more roadside taverns, barns, and all that. And Berger just starts expanding all over the county. He's said to be this good-looking guy, charismatic, a charmer, a showman. He kind of dressed like the cowboy part of his background. And he lived in Harrisburg, where he had a family, two daughters. And there, he kind of played this role of respectable businessman. You know, 
family man, all that. I think at this point, that's kind of like a gangster cliche. Mm. You know, the guy who pretends like he's just got like legal interests. But back then, I think it was kind of revolutionary. Well, yeah, it became political, right? Like it wasn't just about like, you know, okay, let's just do crime to make more money and buy a Lamborghini. It was like a political, not to say that like, obviously they weren't benefiting, but there was, I think the people would certainly would appreciate that kind of gangster, or you know, quote unquote gangster than the kind we have today. Right, right. He had these aspirations of respectability. Like he wanted to hang out with the elites and all that. Mm. He wasn't like a thug over there. He didn't play that role. He let, you know, he had cars and phones back then, which was not a a normal thing for people to have, you know? And he would lend them out to people. He would toss dimes to kids, which I think sounds like a dickhead move nowadays. But back then, it was probably <laughs> like tossing out, tossing out $20 bills to them. I don't know. I mean, Google inflation, who the hell knows? He gave money to the poor. He had this reputation as being like a Robin Hood gangster. And according to Daniil's book, quote, one of his wives said, when he found out there was a family in need, he didn't make it known. He went and he, he bought this stuff and he set it on the porch. He would leave money in envelopes under their doors. So, you know, good dude. In that regard, I guess. And uh, I'm actually quoting an NPR article now by Tara McKellen McAndrew, which I use a bit. And she's quoting the book. So it's kind of like, quote, Inception uh, with that quote right there. But Berger, he kept this town of Harrisburg crime free, right? When a shop was robbed there, he very publicly paid the shop owner the money he had lost. And then a few days later, the thief turns up dead. Jeez. So he kept a, yeah, he wanted to keep, keep things on the straight and narrow where he was. Right. But- in, na- in neighboring counties, right, he's building a bootlegging empire, and he's ruthless. Early on in his rise, he personally kills two small-timers who try to get in his way, and it's only a few days apart, and he always claims self-defense. And he had this thing, he would push and he would aggravate his rivals, and he would get them to publicly threaten him. So when he killed them, it was really easy to get off and be like, hey, it was self-defense. You heard what they said about me. <laughs> That's crazy. That, <laughs> That's like, dude, I mean, I that, don't like stand, him. stand your I'll, ground, right? Right, but it's like, I don't like him. I'll get him to hate me so that I can murder right. him. That's wild. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020 and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This new age channel told us Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals? That are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G. As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping stuff it gets very gory in the basement and it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the capital insurrection 
But it didn't stop there. Every week on Conspirituality Podcast, we track the overlaps between New Age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, when you have something like your car, right? You take it in for, for updates all the time, for, for checkups, for all that when things aren't working right. Imagine you had the same car for your entire life, right? This is how our brains work. So why don't we treat them that way? Get them, I mean, this strategy that seems to, to work. And also he's buying off all the local politicians and the police, just like bootleggers did in big cities like New York and Atlantic City and all that. And he's ruling it as his own little kingdom. He's putting the fear of God into anyone who even thinks about crossing him building his army of shooters that came to be known as Burger's Boys. And there's an extremely badass photo of them that I'll put on the Patreon and on the IG, which is just like, yeah. I mean, they, they had a look, you know, too. They, these guys had style, man, that 1920s gangster cowboy style. Mm-hmm. So we're in the early 1920s now, and it, but it's not just Burger that's on the rise getting powerful, right? That's getting an army behind him. There's two other groups on the rise in this area. And the first is another group of gangsters led by the Shelton brothers called the, uh, the Shelton gang, so very original. Carl, Earl, and Bernie Shelton, they're born poor in southeastern Illinois in nearby Wayne County. And a lot of this info is from an interview with uh, this guy, Taylor Pensano, who is the author of a book called The Brothers Notorious About Them. There's 10 Shelton brothers in total. Their parents had a tough time putting food on the table. They grew up in sort of like a ramshackle house. You know, so they're your typical, in that time, like American type of, you know, hillbilly, redneck, whatever you want to call it, good old boys. They learn to shoot at a young age, and they start out low-level, just getting into trouble. Earl and Carl are jailed in 1915 for robbery, and then once prohibition gets going, of course, like any aspiring criminal, they're going to get into that. Carl is the leader. He's this handsome, smooth ladies' man. Big Earl is the businessman, and Bernie is the killer. It's kind of interesting, too, how like all these early gangs, I guess even gangs now, like the Supreme Team, like they have you know the role, right? There's always like... The main guy who's the brains and the main guy who's the enforcer. Hmm. And I guess it makes sense, but I always kind of found that like cliche, but also, I guess, reality. So they get their start making good old fashioned, you know, hail people moonshine. Then they open a bar in East St. Louis and they quickly start selling their booze to other bars and they get into big time bootlegging and running gambling ops all over Southern Illinois, like expanding rapidly. They're also bribing all the officials and cops just running criminal rackets. Gambling, brothels, auto thefts, robbing banks, you know, they're tough, violent guys. Says that NPR article quoting a 1926 Washington, D.C. Evening Star paper, throughout Williamson, Franklin, and Saline counties, the Shelton gang ran a dozen big roadhouses, some of them 24 hours a day. It goes on, poker and dice joints operated openly. They were raking in a goodly portion of Williamson and Franklin County's $2 million monthly payroll, which means that, you know, they were getting the sort of state and county employees. They were all going over there, which also, you know, 24 hours in like a rural area. I mean, that it's pretty, I think, I feel like the only place that happens in the States now is New Orleans during Mardi Gras, but that's, uh, <laughs> sounds like prohibition always sounds like a good time to me. You yeah. Know? Like I, 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 when I was a kid, actually, I was really interested in Al Capone. I was really young. Uh, I don't know if you have them in America, but in Britain, we have, we had this series of books called horrible histories. Um, and I don't know, my mom like bought me the Al Capone one instead of like Vikings or Romans or whatever the fuck. I guess she was like, yeah, got me the Al Capone one. And I was just, I used to draw 
this is kind of weird, but I used to like draw these. I was good at drawing as a kid and I would always draw like pictures of Al Capone because he had this big scar on his face, like from the images in the book. And I thought he was cool. Um, I, I know like he was a piece of shit, like really he did a lot of bad shit. But, you know, as a kid, I was just reading it. And I, I remember even then just thinking like, wow, that sounded like a cool time to be around, you know? This is this is just the the Jake origin story that we we always knew existed but never got out. Yeah, but I just I just never became a gangster. <laughs> no, not even the gangster. Just getting all these horrible history books and, and reading them. But yeah, no, absolutely. Capone. I mean, Chicago is Illinois. Like Capone is the one who got all the attention, and you had the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and all that. But these guys were probably even more violent. They were a little before. Well, I guess the same time as Capone. Although I think the Valentine's Day Massacre was 1929. But yeah, these guys get no attention and i think it's even a better story than capone but capone got a chicago big city a lot of newspapers there so you know that's that's what it was yeah so the burger gang and the shelton gang they basically got along during this time period you know they each had their their early years prohibition they each had their own little kingdoms and all that and for all intents and purposes they were able to, to coexist some reports said they even worked together a lot but unfortunately there's another group of thugs in southern illinois gathering soldiers and territory at this time too and they're a real bunch of dickheads. KKK is on the rise. Yeah. Remember what I said about the changing face of these rural parts of America, the immigrants yeah. coming in, bringing their wacky customs and traditions like drinking booze, right? And then you have these bootlegging mafiosos too, many of whom are Im- immigrants as well and Catholics, and they basically ran things now. So you have this, this quote from the Digital Research Library of Illinois History Journal again. In the spring of 1923, the Klan began organizing in Williamson County holding meetings attended by more than 5,000 people. The Klan drew its support from both the farming community and people in the larger towns, the latter mainly of Southern origin and belonging to the Baptist and other traditional Protestant churches. There's a lot to unpack here, right? This is the second iteration of KKK that is on the rise here. So it's not like what's, what's happening now, which is, I think, the third or fourth iteration. Uh, the first came about, it really, the origin story is the late 1860s, and it's made up of former Confederate army officers that were focused on reinstalling white supremacy, slavery, and all that sort of stuff, targeting black citizens and black leaders and like the sort of northern people that were trying to trying to spread civil rights down there. So they actually got stomped out during Reconstruction by the federal government in the 1870s. The second iteration, it gets going in 1915. And a big part of that is that, you know, the silent movie Birth of a Nation comes out, which depicts and romanticizes the first iteration of the Klan. That's that pure Nazi shit, right? Right. You have like a bunch of dickheads who see this movie about these other dickheads and they have the bright idea to give it a go again. Wow. And this new iteration, they're a bit smarter than the last one, right? They really stress law and order. And when prohibition comes around and a sort of lawlessness pervades, it's perfect for the clan to focus on. They can appeal to the God-fearing Protestant Americans who want prohibition, right? And they blame the lawlessness on the blacks, on the Jews, on the Catholics, the immigrants, the boozers, all those who are ruining the American way of life. But it, it's mm. interesting. I think the, 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 the view of the KKK now, right, is like toothless rednecks and all that. But mm. back then it was kind of like, you know, elite parts of society, you know, established people. The, I remember reading into the lynching stuff um, as a teenager. I like there was a lot of fucking wealthy people doing that shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was that was the first iteration. But the second iteration that comes back, it's right, the same yeah. thing again, right? It's yeah, kind yeah. of like the elites that have been established in these towns forever. It's not, you know, your regular it's not led by dudes in the mountains who like can't read in our are and have no teeth yes yeah. you know it's it's not that stereotype that we have now i guess now definitely seems like it's a lot more like that yeah um but yeah it's it's led by the elite of these societies by the 1920s it's estimated that the clan has millions of members like millions right 
And I actually learned a lot about this from a YouTuber called The History Guy, which I know, shameful YouTuber, but he's a great source. And he talks about how there's a lot of people in Southern Illinois, Little Egypt, this area they call, who want their towns clean and law-abiding, right? There's a reason prohibition passed and they see booze and the industries that go with it as this un-American way of life. It's the thing, kind of thing that like Jews and Catholics and other undesirables do. And this is a perfect time to pay homage to, to Paulie Walnuts here. So RIP, Dale, put that quote in. I got to move some cash around. If I'm going to land it, I'm going with a fucking package. I'm not going to be like Mickey Masuko. That poor prick, he had five fucking minutes to run. He ended up in some rat-infested motel down in Elvis country. What is that? Eh, anywhere there are no Jews or Italians. I don't get it. It's starting. <laughs> it's fucking so, starting. Yeah, this is a thing that like booze, hookers, and gambling, they see that as un-American, which I don't know. That strikes me as, uh, as, as the opposite of reality, but what can you do? Yeah. So the clan, they're smart about this, right? They're ranting and raving about law and order, saying they're going to clean up the towns, get rid of the gangsters, make everything law-abiding. And this is a quote from a paper called Morality in an Era of Lawlessness, which sounds kind of familiar if you think about what's going on right now. Quote, the Klan attributed the rampant government corruption of the late 19th and early 20th centuries to an American economy taken over by strangers. The KKK worked to combat the forces of corruption by operating as a national political lobby, one that sought to reform government in much the same way as the grassroots activists who enacted municipal government reforms. The movement fought for purity reform measures which kept with the Klan values of Americanism and tradition by supporting immigration restriction laws that would restore the American economy in addition to lobbying for prohibition in defense of Christian values. So, um, yeah, you know, things change, but they also, they also stay the same. It's always so fucking ironic when they're like, yeah, let's, let's murder people in Jesus' name. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. And, and prohibition had passed, though, because people wanted it and had support. So the Klan did have support and the right. local su- police, they were mostly on the take or they were scared of the gangsters. They had support from like total fucking squares. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and people who were like, uh, you know, th- they wanted the police to do stuff, but they couldn't. They, they weren't about to do anything. So I'm going to jump a little ahead of myself here mm. to when the Burger and Shelton gangs were actually fighting the, uh, each other after the KKK. But this is just a really good story that's illustrative of how much these gangs ran things at the time. In 1926, a reporter from D.C., from the Evening Star newspaper, he comes to town and he rides along with the local sheriff to see what's going on because all the gang wars and violence in Illinois, it's getting national, it's getting national attention, right? It's making national news. So it must have been heaven, though, to be a reporter covering this stuff because you can just get access to anyone. But the local sheriff, he brings him to the Red Onion, which is one of the burgers' speakeasies. And he sees shady looking men out front. And he asks the sheriff questions about like, you know, who are those guys? What's going on? And the sheriff is like, yeah, those are burgers, man. They're definitely armed. They're gangsters, but like a typical DC reporter who doesn't understand shit when it's not on some printed statement from an official, he's like, well, why don't you arrest them? And the guy says, quote, you don't know much about Heron, do you? You see, I don't arrest them because I can never convict them of anything. And anyway, I don't want to die. So, I mean, there it is, you know? Yeah, serious. But it kind of shows why there were some people who backed the KKK talking about how they're going to clean up the town and, and do all that stuff. So they're on the rise. And they need to find a man who's willing to go into these towns and take matters into his own hands. And for that, they turn to Glenn Two-Gun Young, who turns up in Williamson County in 1924. So the previous clan guy in charge over there, uh, a guy named Caesar Cagle, he's killed. And Young is just like, he's a shooter. You know, he's well known for being like a quick draw guy, known for being violent. He had been a prohibition agent. And this is a quote from Southern.com. 
Young often appeared in public in riding pants and boots, pearl-handled six-shooters strapped to his thighs, and a submachine gun cradled in his arms. He was a former prohibition agent who was fired and prosecuted for various abuses, including killing a man. In 1923, Young was looking for a cause, and the respectables of the bloody Williamson counties were looking for a crusader. And do you know what kind of, like, just overall scumbag you have to be to get fired from being a fed for abuse in the 1920s? Yeah, like, you, you've got you know, to be, like, like, the king of evil. <laughs> like, just so many right. abuses, right? You've got to just have, like, gunned down, like, innocence for no reason. Just, you know, real, real dirtbag scumbag stuff. So well, I, I always think, like, you you got to really be really dumb or really fucking really bad to get caught for anything in a time before CCTV and phones. So right. this guy was a right. real piece of shit, I'm sure. And as a law enforcement agent, right? Like that's, it's insane. So it should give you the kind of, the idea of the kind of person that, that, that he is. And what happens is young and the KKK, they start up being vigilantes, right? They start doing night rage. They're going after citizens. They're going after moonshiners. They're going after innocents. They're breaking down doors, arresting. And I say arresting kind of like not accurately because they had no real authority. They're just locking up offenders, like detaining them on like, like basements. And they're just on the war path. And of course, as you can imagine, they're going after the immigrants, the Catholics, the Jews, the blacks, the miners who had come to work from elsewhere. And they're also kicking out and arresting law enforcement, installing their own politicians and sheriffs and cops. They're creating their own little kingdom run by like martial law. Like they were the law. And they locked up all these people in their unofficial prisons and they're fighting the bootleggers in the streets. They lay siege to a local hospital when some injured bootleggers are there being treated. It is martial law. Like he's killing bootleggers as well. You even need a password to tell the clan if you wanted to go in or out of Heron. And the coal miners are protesting, saying he's a dictator. But he definitely, like I said, he had a lot of supporters. So that paper on morality I mentioned earlier, it says, quote, one of the most widely praised raiders from Southern Illinois was Sheriff S. Glenn Young. As one resident commented, there was hardly a nook or corner of the entire United States where the name of S. Glenn Young is not known. In a book written right about that time by, by a bishop called The Real Story of the Southern Gang Wars, I found it online, which is kind of cool because it's like, you know, uh, wasn't typed out, right? It's like a 1920s book written in his handwriting. It says, quote, S. Glenn Young to his admirers was a dauntless crusader who feared neither man nor the devil in fighting sin, such as he found it and around Heron. To those who hated him, he was a swashbuckling interloper whose own violence were greater than the crimes he attempted to correct. Sounds like a, a really so, interesting character anyway. Yeah, I mean, he's like that like quintessential 1920s, 1930s cop who's going to clean up the herb. I guess not cop, but vigilante who's going to clean up the town. People were so tough back then, man. Like, just so fucking yeah. tough. Like, I'm out here like, oh, it's so hot in England. <laughs> I might cry. These guys are just tough out there, man. Dude, I mean, it was lawlessness. It was gangsters or vigilantes. Like, they were, right. you know, think about it. There weren't, there weren't a lot of people who could stand up to these guys when they had all the guns. So, interesting side note, that book also claimed, and I found this nowhere else, that Berger had lived in a neighborhood called Hell's Half Acre in New York City, which I assumed he meant Hell's Kitchen, but I looked it up. And it was the name of Brooklyn's red light district then, which is, uh, they claim that that's how Berger learned about operating in the underworld. So that's the area real close to the Navy Yard and the East River, I think, Sand Street, which is just south of Vinegar Hill. Uh, I'm okay. not sure if it's true, but when some producer ultimately rips off this episode to make a movie about this story, <laughs> definitely include, definitely include a scene like that for Berger's like formative years of him, like this hillbilly going to New York or I guess Russian, Jewish, but also country boy going to New York and learning all about it. 
you know? Yeah, and also for like the, the YouTubers and podcasters and producers who listen to our ideas and take them anyway, if you join the $15 tier on Patreon, we put up the scripts and the sources. It, it'll make your lives a lot easier. So definitely patreon.com slash the underworld podcast. Definitely, yeah. definitely do it that way. It'll save you time. I would, de- I would definitely advise like Hollywood producers to, to sign up to that. It just makes like they're stealing so much easier. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> they just steal it straight from the, the page. It's going to be a lot. Yeah. It, it, it'll, it'll save you time. So young is on the war path, like with the clan, but Berger and his soldiers, they're not going to take this lying down and neither is the Shelton gang. So they join forces and they, they go to war against young and the KKK and they're both just like stocking up. They're getting guns. They're recruiting soldiers and shooters. Now there's gunfights breaking out on the streets. People are getting killed. I think 18 alone from 1924 to 1925. I think there was about a year, maybe a year and a half of this war says that paper on morality, quote, there remained a sizable portion of the population that objected to the KKK's activities. When the Shelton and Burger gangs came together in opposition to the Ku Klux Klan, they were supported by many people who, while normally law-abiding, objected to the Klan on general principles. The support of the gangs by the citizens of Williamson County, in conjunction with the backing of a few law enforcement officials, gave the gangs a backing to wage war against the Klan. So yeah, I mean, I don't want to give the impression too that like everyone loved the clan there except for the bootleggers, right? There were also, like they say, you know, like average citizens who were like, fuck the clan, fuck what they stand for. We support the gangsters. Yeah. Straight up. Sounds good. Yeah. If they're against the clan, so, fuck it, right? Cho- choose your weapon wisely, isn't it? Right. So Summer Burgers boys, they even ambush Young. They shoot up his car. They injure him and his wife. And Young, he has some papers calling him like the toughest man in America, the bravest man in America. You can kind of see how easily... You know, he'd be portrayed by his supporters taking on these gangs. You know, he kills some bootleggers too. Mm. But his reign of terror is very short-lived. In January of 1925, Young's at the European Hotel in Harren with some of his boys, right? This is his territory. He's with his shooters. He's comfortable. But there's a, a lawman by the name of Ora Thomas who walks in. And he runs with Berger. A big gunfight ensues. He kills two of Young's bodyguards and Young. But he also is critically wounded. So he takes on these guys and, and shoots them down. And Young dies. His funeral is huge. There's tens of thousands of people there. Though eventually, like his enemies use his tombstone for target practice. But, you know, that's how much support the clan has and how much support he had. And the war keeps going because the clan still has people. In April of 1926, though, there's this big contentious election going on. And it's the clan and the churchgoers versus the bootleggers, their allies, and the anti-KKK people. Mm. And there's a clan leader by the name of John Smith, and he's at one of the polling areas, you know, just kind of watching a poll enforcer. So again, like this is just sounds very familiar. He's surveilling things and he goes after some Catholic voters, including a nun. So a fight breaks out. A couple of shots are fired. Word starts to spread around town and gangsters go looking for him. There's chaos all over. Gunfights are breaking out in the streets and they're hunting each other. Tommy guns, shotguns, all that. Even the National Guard is eventually called in. But a bunch of high-level KKK members are killed in gunfights with the Burger Gang. Some of the gangsters die too. But the KKK, they just look weak. You know, they end up looking weaker than the gangsters. They lose steam. And eventually they get, they get kind of stamped out from, from Southern Illinois. And by 1930, this iteration of the clan is basically kind of finished. You know, they just get, I think they get down to like 30,000 members from upwards of 5 million at one point. But this gang, like the Burger Gang and the Shelton Gang, they basically ran the clan out of southern illinois which is you know it's kind of kind of awesome and again the movie the movie writes itself i'm surprised there hasn't been one made already 
genuinely though, it would like jokes aside, it would be like such a sick movie as well. Like what what yeah. a cool piece of American history that you just don't hear about, you know? Yeah. I, I was generally like I, I forgot where I read about this. It might have been a month or two ago. And I was genuinely shocked that I made a note. I was like, this is an episode right here. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, by this point, the Shelton gang and the Burger gang, they're running joint operations and bootlegging. They're getting liquor from Florida. They're bringing a lot of it to Chicago. They're splitting up gambling territory and all that. But of course, the partnership soon sours. Only shortly after the clan is beaten, this is in the summer of 1926. And with a story this old, right, it's impossible almost to separate lore from reality, just about this and in general. You know, and I've seen, you know, I'll see stuff quoted from like a, like a newspaper 1919 or the 1990s or 2000 that says, you know, there were 5,000 people at Burgers Hanging. Yeah. But then you read the original source and it says 500. Mm-hmm. So all that is to say that we don't really know what the truth is, but some sources, most of them seem to think it started over a woman that both Carl Shelton and Charlie Burger were going after. Others say it was over a robbery the Sheltons did against one of Charlie's friends. And either way, soon enough, there's war all over Bloody Williamson once again between the Sheltons and the Burgers. Both sides have a ton of soldiers and guns. Both have their local allies with politicians and police. And both have their like country hideouts. And, you know, the police and politicians that weren't allies, they were too scared and powerless to do anything. And according to the history guy I mentioned earlier, a Senate special committee to investigate crime and interstate commerce in the 1950s said this gang war in Southern Illinois, quote, reached a peak in bloodiness unparalleled in United States crime history. So in six months, 24 people were killed. And these guys are, are innovative, right? See, Berger, he had his headquarters at this rural roadside building called the Shady Rest. It was a barbecue, speakeasy, gas station hideout all in one with like music. and Called the Shady Rest. Shady Rest, yeah. Awesome. That's that's so cool. With music and gambling and cockfights and all that. And the Shelton brothers, they go to an airfield or their soldiers go to an airfield. They find a guy who's repairing a plane and they threaten him slash pay him to fly the plane over the shady rest and drop a bomb or stick a dynamite on the hideout. And I think a lot of places refer to this as the only ever aerial assault organized crime attack in US history. Though, I mean, I guess it's kind of a bootleg version if you're just like flying over and dropping dynamite, but it still is. It's like um, a makeshift airstrike <laughs> or something. Right. It's, it's pretty innovative, man. Yeah, you know, right. I, you got to give them respect. So I found, this, I found this Time Magazine story from February 1927 that's kind of written in a really fun way. And it describes it like this, quote, In November, some of the Shelton gang, progressive, modern-minded, bought an airplane, dropped bombs, scarred the landscape, missed shady rest. Undiscouraged, they waited for a dark January night crept close up under Shady Rest steel-barred windows, stacked dynamite against its walls, a roar, a glare, and Shady Rest was a flaming ruin, tenanted by four dead bodies, three men, one woman. But Gunman Burger, fingers crossed, rabbit-footed, was away when the dynamiters called. So yeah, both gangs had, um, they did all sorts of crazy shit like this. And uh, they had what the media actually referred to back then as tanks, which don't kill me like tank people. It was basically trucks they kind of built up with armor and fortified and stuck machine guns on, which I guess, you know, hadn't been done before either. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, this is like Mad Max serious stuff that, uh, that they were doing in the 1920s. So more power to them. Meanwhile, Berger goes on the radio, right? He has a message read over it where he says the general public doesn't need to worry. They have nothing to fear. The only people that are going to be killed are other gangsters and he'll protect everyone against the Shelton brothers. Berger also openly threatens to kill Mayor Joe Adams of West City, Illinois, 
unless he leaves town. So Adams was in bed with the Shelton gang. And at one point, Burger got word that a garage that Adams owned was servicing the Shelton gang's tank. But Adams, he wouldn't give it up. Burger ends up burning it down. But, you know, after that, Adams is a target. And he was also said to have been involved with the airstrike planning. You, so at you know one what's going to happen, Danny? You know what's going to happen? Some motherfucker is going to go back in the history books and be like, actually, it wasn't a tank. <laughs> you know what I mean? He can, he can go. I mean, it wasn't, right? It, it didn't have tread, but that's how they called it, a tank, you know? It's I'm not so argue funny, with, with, though. Like, I love, like, misidentifying APCs on purpose as a tank on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I went for a stage of doing it so much, and I, I was like, nah, I've got to stop this. Just shit stirring all around. Um, Burger, he... You know, they, they firebomb and they shoot up this, the mayor's porch. And when that fails to get him, he sends two teenage brothers who are orphans and also gang members. He pays them $50 each to go shoot Adams. They knock on his door. They hand him a letter. They say it's from the Shelton brothers. Then they shoot him and kill him. This actually goes a little too far, you know, and it warrants are issued for his arrest. Mm. But Berger still wasn't too worried about consequences. Says the newspaper, the New Britain Herald, quote, Berger believed his machine gun rule was so strong that the law could not touch him. For weeks, after the warrant was issued for his arrest for the Adams murder charge, he defied authorities to arrest him. He said he was too busy hunting Carl Shelton, having bet $500 that he would kill him. And this is from the, uh, that Time article, quote, Law officers, for the most part, life-loving, peace-seeking, have shut eyes, stopped ears, waited for dog to eat dog. <laughs> I mean, if you guys... I'll put this up on the Patreon, but it, like the writing on this is just like so fun, and, and these guys are what, really what good. a great line, right? What a great piece of writing. Yeah, yeah, peace loving, a peace seeking, life loving law enforcement doing nothing. I mean, that's yeah. It's nineteen twenty seven Time Magazine, so it just kind of shows how fun journalism used to be. Yeah, but that's right. Our, like we'll yeah. save we'll save that rant for another day. That's for the <laughs> burger. He does finally end up in jail but he's treated like a celebrity, right? In previous jail stunts, he had done stuff like bought donkeys for the police chief's kids. And when he first went in, he's allowed to take in a machine gun and a pistol, uh, ostensibly to like protect himself against the Sheltons. But there are women coming by the jail. They're bringing him like pies and food. Kids come by to just talk to him. And there's eight armed deputies patrolling the jail outside Burger Cell just to make sure that he doesn't get busted out. At the same time, all the Shelton brothers, they're being held in a jail too because some of Berger's men had testified against them for a 1925 mail carrier robbery. And they're facing sentences of 25 years and are in Leavenworth, which is a federal prison, I think, in Kansas. And that, that's a lesson for you guys. It's not just don't Instagram your crimes. Never fuck with a mailman because that's actually a federal offense. Also, it's like they're considered, the most important, one of the most important Yeah, no, we respect mailmen here. But also, if you do fuck with them or the mail in general, like not just the mailman, the mail... It's considered a federal offense, and the penalties are really, really big. I think there's also something with bus drivers too, but whatever. Eventually, the Shel- Sheltons would get off. What happens is, Berger isn't so lucky. First, the teens he hired to kill the mayor, they turn on him and testify against him. Then the general public starts to turn on him when he goes too far. Him and his men, they kidnap a state police officer and his rumored-to-be-pregnant school teacher wife. One theory goes the cop used to be allied with him, but turned on him and was going to try to collect a reward for info related to a bank robbery he was going to you know implicate the burger gang in another involves a car theft ring and another is that the cop had been cozying up with the shelton brothers whatever it was the cop is killed his body's found and then months later his wife's body is found one of the shooters involved who's burger's man turns against burger as well dimes him out and the shooter also happens to be one of the witnesses in the shelton brothers male robbery case and he recants his testimony so the shelton brothers get out of jail mm. 
And the murder to wife thing, you know, this is when public opinion kind of sours on Berger. Right. He's still you can't on trial. Do that. Yeah. Like that school teacher, pregnant women, you know, it's just not, not going to fly. So he's still on trial only for the mayor's killing. And his lawyers, they're trying everything. You know, they apparently are going hard for an insanity plea, but Berger makes this joke about how he should be buried in, buried in a Catholic cemetery because the devil wouldn't look for a Jew there. And that apparently <laughs> ruins his, that's too good. And it that's ruins so his good. chances. Yeah. And then, and then they send him to the gallows. Right. So he's the last person, you know, that's when the cold open happens. He's the last person to be publicly hanged in the great state of Illinois. And the Shelton brothers, they actually keep bootlegging and, and, and just gangbanging for a while, even after prohibition ends. They get involved with the labor racket. At one point, they actually had snatched Peoria, Illinois, which is, I guess, mid-level between Southern Illinois and Chicago from the Chicago outfit. So they, they ended up being pretty serious. But yeah, that is the story of how a Jewish and redneck mafia fought off the KKK in Illinois and then, uh, and then fought each other. So um, yeah, Jake, thanks as always, man, for, for supporting us and for joining us. Tell people where they can find you. Well, yeah, man. Thanks very much for uh, educating me. Not just now, but what? Like, how long have I known you? Like, over 10 years. Like, definitely over 10, 10 years. years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's fucking fascinating, man. You're still finding these, like, really intricate stories. Honestly, like, your work really inspired me to do the work I do years back. So, it's really cool, man. Thanks for having me on again. Um, sure, man. Thank you, dude. No, serious. And, and I hope fucking, you know, genuinely hope Hollywood producers actually fucking work with you guys. There's so many good stories here, you know, rather than just fucking stealing shit. But I doubt it. But uh, yeah, man, if people want to, if people want to just follow my stuff, I mean, just look up Popular Front. That's my platform. Um, independent conflict journalism. Um, you can, the best place really is just, if you go to popularfront.co and there's just links to everything there, like our social media, our podcast, our Patreon, please subscribe, um, all of that, our documentaries, everything. So yeah, man, if people just popularfront.co uh, and they'll find me. And if you want to look me up, it's uh, just go to my website, jakehanrahan.com. It's H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Yeah, and for us, it's uh, patreon.com slash the podcast. As always, rate, subscribe, do all that other shit. And uh, I want to say to Jake's recent documentary is about... um anti-fascist football hooligans who are linking up and uh and fighting against russians in ukraine i mean like how do you not go immediately right now and watch that documentary i don't understand like if you don't want to do that i don't i just i can't understand yeah that for me it's like one of like not to be cocky but i was like that's a popular front classic right there <laughs> like what a fucking yeah. story you know like yeah that's it's up there the with most- uh with plastic defense for me i think it's fucking cool YouTube hates it, though, because they uh, fucking age-restricted it and demonetized everything. So, yeah, if people can, go to uh, just youtube.com slash popularfront. It's the first doc on there if you look on the on the page. Um, yeah, watch it, share it, all of that. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jake. Thanks, bro.